Well, good morning. That was good. Uh, my name is Nathan Allen. I am the missions pastor at New Heights Church in Fayetteville and the director of Global Outfitters there. Uh, Josh uh, Wilson is on sabbatical, and so he said, if we get another red-bearded guy, I don't think they'll notice. So, um, so happy to be in here filling in today. We're going to continue through uh, Matthew this morning. And uh, I will always remember in a hot summer of 2008 uh, when I heard news and I had an epiphany that changed the course of my life. Uh, I was standing in a hot parking lot in, in Fayetteville uh, in Lot 56. And it wasn't just a normal parking lot. It was the practice field for the Razorback Marching Band. And I was in the marching band for my first two years of college. And uh, I was standing there, and we were in formation, learning drill, you know, and we're kind of bored. And um, I'm standing there, it's so hot, and I'm like, this is not worth it. Like, all the, like, countless hours every week for, like, one hour of college credit. I was like, this is not equivalent for as much energy I'm putting into this. And a guy who was a senior in the trumpet section with me said, was talking about all the mascots, and we were talking about Razorbacks and everything. And he said that he was a senior, and all the other mascots were seniors. And that's when it clicked. And I said, wait, if all of the other mascots are seniors and they're graduating, that means if I try out, I had the same shot as everybody else. And so I was thinking about how hot and miserable band was, and I was like, I would rather be in a fursuit. So, um, <laughs> so I actually started emailing and figuring out everything I had to do for mascot tryouts. And I put my name in, and I tried out against three other guys for the uh, Be the Mascot, the Razorback mascot. And it was, uh, tryouts were pretty grueling. You know, we had to memorize the alma mater and all these facts about the U of A and all these things and had to be good representative. And of course, we had to make skits and dances up, you know, and do all sorts of ridiculous stuff. And then sure enough, like after a week of tryouts, we get together in the room with all the judges and they announced that I was the mascot for the University of Arkansas. And just, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And like, not only was it a better scholarship, but they were like, hey, here's all of your official Razorback athletic apparel. You know, I had shoes with Razorbacks on them. It was amazing. And just when I thought, like, life could not get any better, they were saying, now that you're a mascot for a university, now you have to go to mascot camp. <laughs> and I said, what the heck is mascot camp? And it's where mascots all around the United States come together in the summertime. And if you're thinking that sounds like a hilariously amazing time, you're absolutely right. Like, it was the most I'd ever laughed in my entire life. Uh, and you think about it, you get like the craziest, most outgoing people on all these campuses across America, and you put them in one room. I mean, it took us two hours to call roll, because everyone was just cracking jokes and going nuts. Like, it was ridiculous. It was one of the greatest experiences in my life, uh, being at mascot camp. And the greatest moment of the entire thing, two words, mascot dodgeball, okay? Because it wasn't just we're playing dodgeball, it's everyone is in character. And so you've got all these goofy mascots doing ridiculous things, you know, playing dodgeball. And a guy, of course, if anyone got hit, they wouldn't just get out. They'd have this huge dramatic death, you know? And mascots would come out with a stretcher, you know, and they're doing CPR on mascots. And it was just chaos. And when I became a mascot for the University of Arkansas, like, two things of my life changed. The first being, I was the mascot for Arkansas. So, I mean, it was, it was awesome. Like, I got to be on the 50-yard line 
at the Razorback Stadium with 72,000 fans calling the hogs. Like, some of those amazing experiences in my life, like going to tournaments and like SEC tournaments and all these uh, bowl games. I mean, it was awesome. The second thing that changed my life was that it was the first time I had joined and became a part of an organization that wasn't Christian-focused. For the first time in my life, I was a part of a team, a spirit squad of people that was a a diverse cross-section from my university, which means a small proportion of them actually followed Jesus. There were some great godly people on Palm and cheerleaders, but for the most part, they are just living the college dream. Parties and sex and just everything. And that was the first time I, I had chosen to be a part of an organization where I was around unbelievers all the time. Because up to that point in college, I had completely Christianized my life. I was a part of Bible studies. I was active in my church. I even joined a Christian fraternity, and it was all Christian. I mean, like, I had just completely Christianized my life. But in reality, um, Jesus doesn't ask us to Christianize our life. He asks us to crucify our life. And I think a lot of times we're really, really good at insulating ourselves from, from sinners. And so that insulates, I'm sorry, we insulate ourselves from sin, and that keeps us from sinners. And so to this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus uh, and what he calls for our life. Matthew 16, 24 He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is the call that Jesus has upon our life, not to Christianize it, but to crucify it. So this morning, when we look at Jesus' life, we'll see that he wasn't one to keep messy people out of his life, but he would be known as a friend to sinners. Let's pray. God, this morning we pray that you would open up this book of Matthew to us and we would get to see your son and his life and his experience and the the call that Jesus has for us to be influencers in our culture, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. And God, would we see Jesus' compassion and example? And God, would you use that to change our lives? I pray it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'll open your Bible to Matthew 9. I'm just going to read the passage And then we'll unpack it through there. We're in chapter 9. We're in verse uh, 9 through 13 this morning. Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at his tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And Jesus, as reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Where are we in this story? Um, Jesus has been doing his active ministry for one, one and a half years or so. And Jesus um, grew up in Nazareth. And when he started his ministry, after he was fasting and, and he was challenged for 40 days in the desert by Satan, he moved to Capernaum to make that like his base of operations. That's where he lived. I felt there's a lot of... um, 
I mean, we can re- relate a lot to that. Like Jesus starts his career and moves to a new town. I feel like that's a Bentonville for a lot of people. Uh, and so Jesus is here. And um, he just recently had come from this place called the Gadarenes, from uh, the Decapolis. So across the Sea of Galilee, on the other side of the lake, that's where the, the Gentiles lived. And the Decapolis means like 10 cities or 10 hills. And there were 10 towns over there, Deca meaning 10, or Polis meaning a hill or a city. Jesus was over there, did miracles, cast out demons, and he came back across the river. There was the storm, calming of the storm. And then he lands on the shore and he gets off, uh, like we talked about last week, Sean went through, uh, he gets off shore, and they bring a paralyzed man to him. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and this man is brought back to life. And so this is the town that Jesus lives in. He's performing miracles. Like, if you lived in that town, you would have to be, I mean, purposely cut off from Jesus. Like, everyone in town knew who this guy was, right? A man claims to be God, the Messiah. He says he has the authority to forgive sins. This is what everyone would be talking about in town. It's a big deal. And so Jesus heals that man on the shore who's paralyzed, walks a couple blocks, turns a corner, and here is Matthew sitting at his tax booth. Just reading that sentence, it doesn't seem, you know, very exciting. He just, hey, you want to join me? Yeah, sure. And it's like... But when we, when we actually pull apart these words and really understand this, uh, it, it's really profound. The first thing is um, we don't really understand uh, Matthew and, and who Ma- Matthew is. Um, I took the liberty of like going online and I looked, how long have we been studying the book of Matthew in this church? And I kept scrolling back, you know, click the next slide, click the next slide. We've been going through Matthew since December 3rd. Okay, that's a long time. Great job. Way to persevere. Okay, Um, but what's really fascinating is this verse is the first time we've been going for this seven months. This is the first time we get to see Matthew in the story. This book is written by Matthew. It's called the book of Matthew. And this is the first time we hear about him. And it's the only time he ever writes about himself. So the first thing we know from Matthew is that he's a really humble guy. If I'm writing a book, I'm going to be all over it, right? I'm putting my stories and my name. And this man made this story all about Jesus. And he's not in there at all. Also, we can find about Matthew is um, this man is a tax collector. Okay? And if you think you have problems with the IRS, okay, you have nothing on first century Roman tax collectors. Uh, I spent probably way more time than I should have <laughs> researching Roman taxes this week. And uh, there is a ton to, to learn about Romans. and ta- I, I got a degree in history. Uh, when I wasn't a mascot, I was reading history books. And so uh, I love history. I love studying ancient Rome. And so to learn about the taxes that the Romans uh, put on their people that they conquered, it's pretty incredible because they conquered the entire world. Like, it was the largest empire of the earth. They had all these people, and they made them pay handsomely for being ruled. And so there are a lot of taxes that the Romans charged 
They taxed your land. If you made a product, a statue, uh, everything basically besides farmers, you were charged for that service. If you imported something from across the sea, you had to pay money. Um, get this, they had taxes on widows and orphans, like intentionally charged widows and orphans taxes to pay for horses for the military. I don't know what lobbyists got that through, okay? That's pretty tyrannical. It's pretty, but it, they, it happened. Uh, they charged your inheritance. They taxed everything sold on auctions. They, after the, uh, they conquered Jerusalem, they specifically made the Jews pay taxes because they're like, we're having to fight you guys all the time. We're going to make you pay for all our military. Uh, they taxed the citizens. You got taxed if you sold a slave and you got taxed if you freed a slave. And it's more expensive to free a slave than it is to sell a slave. So there's not going to be a lot of people freeing slaves in the Roman days. And they taxed you on where you lived. They also had a tax if you were unmarried. So if you're a young single, young professional, man or woman, you had to pay taxes. I mean, they're paying everyone out the nose all the time. And how the Romans, you know, they conquered a land of people. They're foreigners. They don't know what works. How are they going to know who's paying what taxes, right? They don't know the locals. They don't know what people do. So they were really genius. They offered the job of tax collector up for auction. And the highest bidder got the tax job. And the person who became the tax collector would then influence, and they had the Roman muscle. They had Roman guards that would make sure that they were enforcing this money, carrying swords. And they would impose all of these taxes on the people. Well, So what does that mean? That means that... uh, This tax collector would impose all this on all the people and his own people. He's charging his own family, the people he grew up with, his own people, his own nationality. He He was the one enforcing these oppressors' money on them. Tax collectors in their society was completely ostracized. They were the same as Gentile sinners, as the Roman dogs that ruled them. They didn't care for them at all. And the, Ro- the Jewish officials put this back on, on this tax collectors. Tax collectors were not allowed to enter a synagogue. They couldn't go to church. They couldn't meet with God. They were forbidden from entering the temple. So there's no way that these tax collectors can ever come to God and just continues this rift. It's just more and more um, polar, keeping them from God. And so this is where we see Matthew. This is Matthew. He said goodbye to his family. He's, he's going to make a lot of money. Tax collectors made a ton of money because after you paid uh, the Romans, the taxes they were due, you could skim whatever was left off the top. And so if that's how you're making your money, you're going to charge way more than what people are owe so you can make more money. And so that's what this guy's job was. He was the most hated guy in town. And we, we don't know this for certain. We have very little about Matthew, but he was a tax collector. So we can just assume his friends and his family hate the guy. And everyone around town is talking about this Jesus. This Jesus is doing miracles. He's healing lame people. He's bringing people back to life. He's doing all these miracles. And where is Matthew? Sitting at his tax booth. Just sitting there. And why is he not involved? Well, it could be a couple uh, a couple things. The first thing it could be is that he just didn't know what was going on. Well, that's 
probably not true. Like, you cannot know that a guy just rose a guy back to life, like you're going to figure it out. He could have been a skeptic and said, nah. But then again, if you were a skeptic and didn't really believe the things that Jesus was doing, you'd want to check it out for yourself, you know. And so I would like to submit that the reason he wasn't cared for, the reason he wasn't seeking Jesus is because he felt that he was unlovable. He felt, he said, I am scum. And there's a great uh, painting that kind of shows uh, this picture. Uh, this is uh, a painting done in the year 1600 by, let me get his name right, Michelangelo Calveggio. Isn't that good, Italian? Okay. Uh, and uh, it's called The Calling of Matthew. And I, I just love the painting. Jesus is obviously the bearded guy on the right with the hand, you know, and he's got the halo. And Matthew is the bearded guy with the yellow tights sitting in the middle. And this is kind of hilariously sad. Like Jesus says, I want you to follow me. And what's Matthew doing? You mean this guy? Like he so hates himself. He's like, you can't be calling me. Right? He says, you must be that guy. No, but Jesus came and sought Matthew. And let me tell you, what's true for a first century uh, despised tax collector, a, a Jewish man, is same true today for every person on this earth and a 21st century American. There is nothing that you can do to get God to love you more. And there is nothing you can do to overcome your sin and your shame and all the baggage of your past. So what does Jesus do? He comes to you. Jesus came to Matthew and says, follow me. Forget all that stuff. Forget your past. Forget all the things you've done wrong. Follow me and change your life. Jesus has a plan for you. And the same true today. This is the gospel. That Jesus came for you to follow him. To, to give up the sin and the squalor of your life. To join what Jesus is doing. And he wants to pay for all of your sin and all your shame and everything you've ever done wrong. And how did he pay for that? With his own life. With his own blood. He bought you back. He paid for everything you ever did wrong. And he's saying, follow me. I have a plan for you. And you can join him just like Matthew did today. He is sitting at your tax booth. You may not be a tax collector. You may have done something that you need to change. Man, we've all done wrong. And Jesus wants us all to follow him. Jesus uh, was a rabbi. He was a Jewish teacher in the day. And what rabbis did, what all, uh, they would go around and find the graduating class of Hebrew boys. So all Hebrew boys, all Jewish boys from uh, a young age until the age they were 13 would go to Hebrew school. And they would learn the Torah. They would memorize the Torah. And so at, when they turned 13 and they were graduating, the rabbis would come, the teachers of the law, and they would find uh, the people and they'd have like test exams. And what they, th these rabbis would do is they would quote a verse from the Old Testament, from, from the Torah, and they would ask the, the students to quote the verse in front of it and the verse after it. That's how you knew you were really good. You really knew the law. And so these rabbis, it's kind of like signing day for football players, you know, in America. Like, what college are they going to go to? They line all of them up with their families. And these rabbis are asking questions, right? Where are you going to go? And then the rabbis would say to the brightest students, okay, I want you to join my team. I want you to follow me. And he would study under that rabbi for his life until he became a master of the Torah himself. 
And so that's what they did. And if you didn't get chosen, you didn't get picked, you weren't drafted, okay, you just got a regular old job. And so you would become mostly the job that your family did. Uh, when Jesus asks his disciples to follow him, are they in Hebrew school? Are they studying? No, what are they doing? They're all at work, right? Peter and James and John, they're fishing. And Jesus goes to these guys and says, hey, come follow me. And they drop their nets. He, he, he's telling them, he, he, it's like he's going to the high school dropouts. And he's saying, hey guys, I, I know you weren't good. I want you to follow me. I'm going to be your rabbi. I want you to follow and learn from me. And can you imagine like the joy and the honor of their parents? Your son wasn't smart enough to go follow a rabbi, but then years later, he picked my boy. And he said, hey, follow him. And he's with Jesus now. He's studying under that rabbi. What an awesome honor, you know? So take, take that whole narrative a step further. You aren't chosen by any of the Jewish rabbis, so you get a job. And maybe you don't have a family business. Maybe you don't have a family. Maybe you don't care. Maybe you just have such a lust for money and for power and influence that you chose the most despised job in your entire town that you'd become the enemy of every person in your city. And that's where Matthew is. And what does Jesus do? He comes to him and says, hey, I want you to follow me. And Jesus doesn't just, uh, Matthew doesn't just follow him. Uh, like I said, I love the, the painting and how he, he didn't feel chosen. But man, if you read the verse, he got up and you follow him. And so let's go to the next verse. Let's see where we see Matthew. What, what, what is going on? And this is verse 10. So they, uh, Matthew follows him. He rose and followed him in verse 10. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees, well, let's just stop there. They're, they're sitting at the table eating dinner. Man, when you get to experience the joy of your sins being forgiven and you are free and you get to follow God because you have a right relationship with him, what do you want to do? You want everyone else to know. You want your friends to know what God has done for you. And that's exactly what Matthew does. He takes all his wealth from extortion and he throws a party. And he invites, who does he know? All the other despots, all the other disgusting people in town that people don't care about right? He gets, hey, come to my house. Dude, we're having dinner. That rabbi guy who's like doing all these miracles, he's coming to my house. And what is Jesus doing? He's reclining with them, eating dinner. It doesn't say Jesus was sinning with the sinners. It doesn't say Jesus was like in the brothels, you know, or he was extorting with the mob, just like everyone. No, no, no. He was just having dinner. He was just having dinner with people. Uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, it's by Ronald Reagan. He says, all great change in America begins at the dinner table. Uh, I, I love that for so many reasons. In my house growing up, we grew up on a farm in Winslow, Arkansas, like halfway to Fort Smith. We lived in the boonies. And uh, we have a family of great cooks. We love food. We love cooking. When a holiday comes up, the emails start months in advance. Who's cooking on what night? What are we having? What are you bringing? What can I do? Hey, I got pecans from grandma's house. Like everyone is excited about the food we're going to have. And dinner time in our family was a big deal. We had dinner every night. The TV was off. Everyone was there. Uh, and it, it was always fun growing up. And, and many times, especially in college, my parents would ask us, hey, feel free to invite another college student who can't go home for Thanksgiving. 
Uh, in, in college when I was there, we would bring international students, right? I, we had a Saudi Arabian guy named Sultan come to our house and have Thanksgiving dinner at our house. It was the first time he'd ever been in an American home. And, and so leveraging our, t- while there's some success stories, I think for the most part, we didn't leverage our dinner table for God's glory very much. Uh, we could have done a whole lot more, uh, but I think it's the same with Jesus. Like Jesus is asking us uh, in our dinner table, like, what are you doing for your glory? Like, I, I think Jesus loves dinner time and how influential it can be in our society. In uh, Luke 14, he says, he said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. At least they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? This is back in Matthew. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was discussed by these religious leaders. He was disgusted by their self-righteousness, having no compassion on the lost. And we need to be leveraging our life. I think if Jesus were today, he might twist that quote a little bit. I'm taking a lot of liberty here. Uh, All great change in the kingdom begins at the dinner table. Probably. Like, he, he didn't say that. That's not in the Bible. But, I mean, he's saying, man, when you have a party, when you, are, when you are having a feast, it's 4th of July time, it's Thanksgiving time, you're inviting people over. He's saying, don't just invite your family or those who are going to pay you back. Man, invite those who just need the gospel. Invite those who need a Christian culture, who, who could use a meal. Invite the poor, the sick, the needy, because it's the sick who need doctors, not the healthy. Jesus' words are clear and his implications on our life. There are are two challenges we have to deal with from his experience with Matthew. The first is, we cannot insulate ourselves. Jesus hates self-righteousness and loves mercy. We Christians, like I said in the beginning, are really good at Christianizing our life. And a lot of times, because we're trying to insulate ourselves from sin, we isolate ourselves from sinners. And Jesus wants us to have influence in our culture. That's the second thing. We have to be influencers. The doctors, those who have the only thing that can save people's souls, need to be in communion, need to be with people who don't have access to that. And just two weeks ago, as I'm preparing for this sermon, I'm walking around Sam's Club trying to find a garbage can. they They didn't sell them. I was going aisle to aisle trying to find them. And I'm walking through this aisle, and I see a guy, an older man, uh, who, who's in our church, who is sitting in the recliner, like all the recliners that are all there. He's sitting in a recliner. He's got an iPad up and headphones on, noise-canceling headphones in Sam's Club, sitting there. And I was like, hey, man, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, man, my car, I j- just got a flat, so I'm having them fix my tire, and I'm just sitting here while they fix my tire. And I was like, what are you watching? He says, oh, I'm watching Pure Flicks. And I was like, uh, what's Pure Flix? And he goes, oh, it's great. It's like Netflix, 
but they only have like VeggieTales and Kirk Cameron movies. And I was, <laughs> he didn't say that, but that's exactly what it is. And, uh, and I was like, man, that's, that's awesome. And so we just started talking and catching up. And I was like, okay, have a good day. Headphones back on, back in the iPad. Uh, man, is there anything wrong with choosing to honor God with your media? No, there's nothing wrong with that. Is there anything wrong with at the end of a stressful day, you have a flat tire, you just need to unwind a bit? No, there's nothing wrong with that. But when that becomes our everyday go-to thing, I mean, what, let's just back up a little bit. What, what if this guy walked in, his car was being worked on, and he said, God, who in this store do you want me to influence while my car is being worked on? And he went to the cafe in Sam's Club and saw someone sitting by themselves and said, hey, can I sit with you? And, and maybe asked the guy how he was doing and prayed for him. I'm not trying to condemn this guy as much as if it is our everyday kind of go-to thing to excuse ourselves from the world, insulate our families, then we're not being the influencers that God wants us to be. One of my mentors says, if I don't hear the F word one time this week, I'm not hanging around the people Jesus wants me to hang around. I think that's a great standard. Are you putting yourselves... I'm serious. Are you putting yourselves in a place with people who don't know Jesus? And, and if you're like me, I, I work as a pastor at a church. 95% of my meetings and interactions throughout the week are with Christians. So that means I have to do two things. I have to in, be intentional to influence those 5% interactions I have going home, on, home from work, going to the grocery store, the gas station, saying, God, who do you want me to influence? Who can I pray for? What can I do? Like, I have to, waiters, when I'm at lunch, like, being intentional to do that. The second thing I have to do, I have to plan in my busy schedule to time to be around lost people. As lame as that sounds, that's what I have to do. So you can probably tell I'm not like the world's biggest exercise nut, um, and if you're like a, a workout Pharisee, you can judge me all you want. Uh, I, I don't like exercising. I think running around the block just to do that is, is ridiculous. Um, however, I will play ultimate Frisbee till my legs collapse. Like literally last summer, I pulled a hamstring. I'm like, okay, I'm done. Uh, I love ultimate Frisbee. And so I joined the Fayetteville Disc Association Ultimate Frisbee Summer League. And you sign up, you pay your $30, and you're assigned to a team with other people. Many of them are learning the sport, so there's not a lot of pressure. It's really fun. And I learned I am with a team of 99% lost people. I mean, it's Ultimate Frisbee Club. They're literally hippies on the sidelines smoking doobies, okay? It is Ultimate Frisbee time. And I get a chance all summer long to be an influencer for those people. I might be the only Christian they meet throughout their week. And I get to ask them, how was your day? What do you do? I bring waters for the team. I try to influence them as much as I can. And, and it, it's just an opportunity for me to invite lost people into my life. And so maybe that's you. Maybe you need to find time to be an influencer, to, to put an opportunity in your schedule to be around lost people. If ultimate frisbee is not, is not your thing, that's fine. What are you going to do to invite the lost and the needy and the sick in your life so you can be a doctor for them. 
the last couple minutes, what I want to talk about is how do we do that? How do we be influencers? For most of us, when we think, oh my gosh, Jesus wants me to do something. What do I do? I got to share the gospel. Where's the napkin? Like people, like we kind of freak ourselves out a little bit when it comes to influencing uh, our community. And there's a, um, a class that we teach at New Heights called Salt and Light. It's like a Friday night, Saturday morning experience where you get to come in and we get to talk. What does it mean to influence your community? And so I'm just going to spend the last couple of minutes talking through some of these principles that can kind of take away a lot of that pressure off of having to influence our community. And uh, one of the first things is the idea of, of Jesus oftentimes talks about reaping the harvest. And in Luke 10, 2, he says, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. Pray to God to send out workers into the harvest, okay? He, he talks about bearing good fruit all the time. And so if my dad, I grew up on an apple orchard in Winslow, Arkansas, and if my dad said to me, Nathan, I want you to go out every week of the year and pick a bushel of apples, that would be crazy. Why would that be crazy? Because apples only come in season. You have harvest time of the year, depending on the apple variety, you know, late uh, August up into September to October, like that's prime apple time. And it's like that around farms around the world. So if we think every time we go out into our culture, into our society, that we're going to share the gospel and someone's going to come to Jesus, that's pretty ridiculous. So what does that mean? For the rest of the time, that's, that's the harvesting piece of, of sharing the gospel. We need to be cultivating relationships, and we need to be sowing truth in people's lives. That's what you need to be doing 80% of the time you're with lost people. What does it mean to cultivate the soil? Prepare it for the seed, right? You need to get the garbage out, get the rocks out as you're tilling the soil. What it, so in our life, what does that mean like? Showing people, well, we'll talk about in a minute. What does it mean to have that opportunity to influence people? You're creating a platform in people's lives of someone they trust and know so that you can have the opportunity when the time is right. So what does this mean with a complete stranger? Well, chances are you're just going to be sowing and cultivating. They don't know you. Maybe. I've done cold turkey evangelism when I was in ministry in college all the time. I don't know. I shared the gospel maybe with a hundred people in college of people I've never met before. How many of them came to Jesus? Two people that I know of accepted Christ. That's, that's not a pretty good margins, okay? But that means throughout that time, we need to be sowing, cultivating, because that's chances of what we're going to be doing. So the idea that you're going to harvest someone, man, praise God if you're in the place at that time that God would use you to share the gospel in someone's life. Uh, God's word that says we need to be always be ready to have a reason for the hope that we have. You've got to be ready. If you don't know how to share the gospel, there are staff people at this church. I will meet with you. We can talk through what does it mean to share your faith with somebody. But chances are we just need to love on people, pray for people, and, and, and just be a presence in their life. The second thing we need to realize is that people have barriers in coming to Jesus. If our friend is here and Jesus is here, we're saying, friend, Jesus, da-da. Like, that's all you have to do. But the problem is, is there are barriers, just like this picture indicates, there are barriers in front of people keeping them from seeing Jesus. The first barrier is an emotional barrier. Every person you meet has an emotional barrier in coming to Jesus. What could that be? Man, maybe they grew up Catholic. And they, they saw the atrocities of, of Catholic priests in America, and they're like, man, that's what religious people are. And they're jaded. They have a hatred for that. Maybe when they were kids, the Christian kids at school had a clique and weren't very Jesus-like. 
and didn't let them sit with them at the lunch table. Like people can hold on wounds for years and years and years. People have emotional barriers. Maybe a Christian never was their friend, never took them out to church. You see what I'm saying? Like there's all these things in their life that could keep them from seeing Jesus. They have an emotional barrier to seeing Jesus. The second barrier is an intellectual barrier. And to be honest, that's the barrier many of us go to first. And we don't even acknowledge that there's an emotional barrier. And if we just skip right around that emotional barrier and we go straight to most intellectual commitments or barriers have to deal with just ignorance. They don't know about the Bible. They don't know what the gospel is. They don't know who Jesus is. They just heard a bunch of fairy tales. They have no idea the truth that the gospel brings. And so they have this intellectual barrier. And a lot of times we go straight for that. And when we don't address the emotional barriers, they just get bigger. My dad always said, no one comes to Jesus from losing an argument. Okay? You can't just go straight to intellectual and hope they see Jesus. You're going to make that emotional barrier worse. And the third barrier is commitment barrier. And in 21st century America, that, that's a big, uh, it's kind of a big barrier in some senses, as in like, are you going to be faithful to live in community? Are you going to deny your sin? Are you going to quit sleeping with your boyfriend? Are you going to put Jesus' commitments and values first in your life? Are you going to be dedicated to your church? Like, that's commitment barriers in America. In Saudi Arabia, that's a completely different thing. Being baptized in the Middle East is like a death sentence on your life. And so, and around the world, commitment barriers can be much big. That means denying their, their family, right? If they, give, if, if they change religions, their family could deny them, say, you're not a part of us. Like, the commitment barrier is a lot bigger around the world. But these barriers do exist. And we need to know that they're there because if we just try to share Jesus without addressing those, it can actually hinder the gospel in their life. Uh, the third thing, uh, and finally, what, how can we have influence? Okay, these are called the, the five C's of Christian influence. So if we're going to till the soil, if we're going to uh, sow the seed in people's lives, if we can, it, kind of like a mirror can reflect light, kind of like the moon can reflect the sunlight, you don't have to see the sun to know it's there. The moon reflects that light. It's the same thing in our lives. And the more we can kind of polish our, our reputation in people's lives, the more influence, the better we can reflect life. And so the first C is Christ-like character. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, and prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors love to be in his company. He is called over and over in Matthew 9, Matthew 11, and the other Gospels. Jesus was called a friend to sinners. Let me tell you, sinners don't like to be around bad people, right? Man, if you are full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, you're known as a kind person in your neighborhood, in your workplace. You're full of goodness, faithfulness. People can count on you. They can trust you. You're a gentle person. You have self-control. Man, people will go to you time and time again because you're a reliable person. So the first thing is to have Christ-like character. Pray that God would fill you with his spirit, that you would be able to show his, his character and his attributes to, to the world. The second is competence. Whatever you do, work with it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Do you work so well in your workplace that it reflects on Jesus, that you have something different about you? Is your large, just an example, July 3rd, we went to a party in our neighborhood. 
because West Fork had fireworks on the third for some reason instead of the fourth. And so we go to their house, and my neighbor spent probably half of the time there complaining about other yards in our neighborhood and how no one mows their yard. Half of the time talking about that. I'm like, hey, it's America's birthday. Could we talk about something else? No. (laughs) So if I want to have influence in that guy's life, am I going to do it if I fail to mow my lawn? No way. So competence for me looks like in my neighborhood having a mowed lawn. And maybe it's different. Maybe, maybe in your neighborhood, uh, people are really concerned with cars going fast and kids playing outside. So maybe if you're the slowest driver in your neighborhood, you're going to show them you care about the things they care about. Right? And that goes into the next one, compassion. You know, they say people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Praise be the God, the Father of Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. I mean, God can give us so much peace and comfort. Why does he do that? So that we can offer peace and comfort to the world, and we can help those. And then lastly, uh, uh, well, we got two more. Wise communication. How are you communicating in your speech? The, how you, it doesn't matter so much in a lot of instances what you say is how you say it. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect. I think a lot of times in our culture, we forget that last sentence. People holding signs on the street. Are you being gentle and respect, uh, respectful to our culture, to people? Uh, and lastly, courage. Man, it is hard to, to be courageous to our neighbors, to walk up to strangers and say, hey, can I pray for you? But Jesus, uh, God's word over and over t- tells us, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Encourage one another and build each other up as long as, or just in fact as you are doing. So my question to you this morning is, who are the tax collectors in your own life? Seriously think about that. Who are the people in your life who need God's grace, but maybe you even despise them and want to have nothing to do with them? Who's the person in your life who God wants you to be the doctor for when they are sick? What are you going to do to have mercy on those who don't deserve mercy? And if you're thinking, man, there's no way I can do this, you can do it. You can do it with God's help. And Jesus is our example. We don't need to be afraid of our reputation, of what other people will say about us. We need to be afraid of God who is commanding us to do these things. I want to end just real quick with a story. Uh, when I was in college, I was at the campus ministry, and we were in L.A. at Santa Monica Beach sharing gospel with strangers. And uh, I was the leader, so I had to know, like, I knew what I was doing, and I had a college student with me, and we walked up. There was a guy sitting on a park bench drinking an iced coffee from Starbucks, and I walked up to him, and I gave him our line. I said, hey, we're going around sharing an illustration that sums up the main theme of the Bible. Can we get your opinion on it? And the guy said, you don't want my opinion. And I said, yeah, I do. Why would you say that? And he said, because I'm gay and because I'm a Buddhist. And I said, man, I'd love to have your opinion. Can we just sit down and talk? And so we went through and shared the gospel, shared what Jesus did for him, that he came and paid for his sin and shame, and that uh, he, he loved us so much that he wants us to be united with him and his family. 
and that you can put your trust in him and he can help you and take care of you and has a plan for your life. And we had a pretty good conversation. He didn't accept Jesus. But he told me, man, I wish Christians were a lot more like you guys. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, man, Christians have done a lot to hurt me in my past. And I said, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for those people. Man, Jesus was a friend of sinners, right? He loved those who didn't know him. And so, man, if Christians were more like Jesus, uh, God's world would be completely different. And so we need to be courageous and, and willing to do God's glory, to be obedient to him, to love those who don't deserve love, just like Matthew. Let me pray, and we'll continue in worship. God, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for Jesus and his example, that he would go to a lost person who was cut off from society. God, you value things that I don't understand all the time why you value them, because that's because you're God. God, you love people, especially those who were lost and humble. God, you, you despise the Pharisees who were self-righteous and, and felt so good about the good things that they had done to, to keep themselves from sinners. But God, you are calling us to influence our neighborhoods, our workplaces, by just being loving, good Christians, to love on our neighbors, and hopefully to share the very thing that can save their souls, and that's the gospel, that you sent your son Jesus to buy us all back. God, would you use us and give us the courage to be obedient, to do the next step to love our neighbors. God, when we have a feast, would we invite the poor and the needy, and would you use us for your glory? Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.